You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Ace Peter Rose is backstage at Lyric. I think it's a fantastic piece, completely uplifting, and after the Act 3 play within a play, if that can't raise people's spirits and make them chuckle, then not much will, I don't think. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. English bass Peter Rose has scored one success after another as bottom in Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which he's singing at Lyric this season. He's previously sung the role in five productions in eight major venues, among them the Aix-en-Provence Festival, where he made his professional role debut, also the Met, Glyndebourne, Paris's Opéra Comique, and more. You can see him in the role on DVD in a performance recorded in Barcelona. He sings an enormous repertoire, from Osmin and Mozart's The Abduction from the Seraglio to the title role of Mussorgsky's Boris Gudnov and Claggart in Britain's Billy Budd. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Peter, but before we get to that conversation, here's a brief synopsis of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Helena loves Demetrius. Demetrius loves Hermia. And Hermia and Lysander love each other. Hermia's father has ordered her to marry Demetrius, so Hermia and Lysander have fled to the forest, where Helena and Demetrius follow them in hot pursuit. Meanwhile, Oberon, the fairy king, has a serious argument with his queen, Titania. Oberon attempts to get the better of her by sprinkling the juice from a magic flower on the sleeping Titania's eyes to make her love the first person she sees when she awakens. This turns out to be Bottom the Weaver. He's in the forest with his friends, rehearsing a play intended for Duke Theseus's wedding. The problem is that, to amuse himself, Oberon's mischievous attendant, Puck, has magically put a donkey's head on Bottom. After observing the four mortal lovers, Oberon orders Puck to use the magic flower to turn Demetrius's attention to Helena. Puck sprinkles the flower on the wrong eyes, the result being that Demetrius and Lysander now both love Helena. The situation is finally resolved. Hermia and Lysander are united, as are Helena and Demetrius, as well as Oberon and Titania. Bottom and his fellow tradesmen perform their very amusing play for the wedding of Duke Theseus to Queen Hippolyta. In retiring for the night, all are oblivious to the presence of the fairies, as the fairy king and queen bless the house. Now, on to my conversation with bass Peter Rose. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Peter Rose, who is back at Lyric Opera to sing Bottom in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a Lyric Opera premiere. And you have, have such a strong association with this piece. It's five productions in eight venues, right? I Something like that. I was trying to work out how many. I think I've done either five or six. If Maybe, um, yes, six if I include the student production I did when I was at the Guildhall. What keeps you coming back to the role? I love the role. It's a fa- well, it's, for me, it's the best role in the in, in the piece it's um you know, he's the guy that um really um well Oberon and Titania are the sort of major players that 
determine what goes on, I guess. But we're in, in our little troop of mechanicals. Um, Bottom's the one that drives drives all the action and has the affair with Titania. Um, I mean, it's great acting role, great vocal role. I mean, it's a it's a marvelous way of uh, of being. Um, very hammy without <laughs> anyone complaining too much. The first time we talked about it, you said to me that the dream, the Midsummer Night's Dream, really is Bottom's dream. Well, I think, I guess it is. I mean, he wakes up, I have had a dream. Um, was it a dream? Was it real? I mean, it, that's that's the question. But the person that has the experience with an otherworldly creature, i.e. Um, Titania, is Bottom. And when he he thinks, what, what, what happened? I thought I was a donkey. Was I? Was I? Isn't sure. Was it real? Was it was it a dream? So if there is a dream, I imagine that's that's it. It was his his dream or non-dream. Now we don't really know much about these guys. I mean, do you do you get a sense that they get together and do plays a lot? I'm not sure if they've done a lot. I think they're like working, if not colleagues. They are people that maybe come to an acting club, and Quince is the director, and they. You know, it's like an amateur dramatic society, and they turn up and they're going to put on a play. This might well be their first one, um, but they, you know, they they know that Bottom has a reputation for being good in inverted commas, uh, and so they sort of look up to him a bit, even when he's getting out of hand. But yeah, I think it's something that because they're quite frightened about actually appearing in front of you know quasi royalty, Thesis Hippolyta. So when we first meet them, they are getting together to rehearse. So in that rehearsal scene, what's most important to communicate to the audience about his character from the very start? Well, the good thing, I mean, I think it's so well written that you see straight away the type of person he is because uh, there's a roll call. In fact, he doesn't give really Quince a chance when he says, is everyone here? He says, you know, you really should have called everybody by their name, according to the script. So he's not even going to let the director take... Can't even do roll call. He can't even take control, you know. He's always got a better idea, you know. You really ought to do it this way. And and then when the parts come along, he thinks, yeah, mm, he doesn't fancy the part that he's been given because he wants to play a tyrant rather than a lover. And then he fancies playing some of the other roles. In fact, all of the other roles that Quince mentions. He's, oh, I want to do that one. I want, let me do that one. I can play that one too. So he, he he wants to star and do everything, really. He's not really very collegial. So is he changed by the experience in the forest? I think he probably is. I think he's more worldly-wise, certainly. I mean, who wouldn't be if you had a experience with the Queen of the Fairies? Yeah, I think um, he's, a more, he's a more mature character at the end than he is at the beginning. Because talking about the dream, this dream that he's had... He gets rather reflective, doesn't he? And sort of quieter than he has been. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's the first time that there's any sort of repose. He's right. he's rather sort of edgy and hysterical and anxious and eager the whole time and chirpy. And this one, he's actually quite mellow. So he's. David Daniels said to me at one point that when he was learning the role of Oberon in this piece, that Lorna Haywood at University of Michigan who was an experienced singer of Britain, said if you learn the rhythms properly, then that really is half the battle of learning this. If you get the rhythms solidly because they're tricky, then everything else will follow. Do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I do absolutely agree Interesting. with that. Interesting. Yeah. Are there tricky rhythms throughout your role? I don't think there are 
that many tricky rhythms in my role, but I mean, I understand what she means because there's a sort of tight rhythmic structure in a lot of my music, certainly, and certainly in Oberon's. And I think she probably means you don't you don't want to be sloppy with the rhythm. You, I mean, it has to be absolutely tight and going with the orchestral music underneath you because you can become, some of it's so atmospheric, the sort of wishy-washiness of some of the forest music, if I can call it that, the, the glissandi. Um, you have to fight against that when you have very percussive rhythms in Oberon's music there's there's lots of um, drum, 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 uh, drum beats and right. things going on and in our first scene it's a very but it's very rhythmic so if it's too lax it sort of just goes like a like a blancmange it's just or a souffle that's gone bad you also have that bit at the opening of the play within a play where you're all Speaking very precisely, I don't. I can't remember what the text. If we is. offend, it is with our goodwill. That's yes. all so precise. But that's the the joke of that also that it's it's all the commas are in the wrong places. Ah, okay. So if we offend, it's it is with our goodwill that we come not to offend. Right. So if, if we offend, it is our goodwill. Blom. That you should think we come not to offend, but with goodwill. So you, it's sentences, but running into the next sentence. That's tricky. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, clearly, you'd be able to do this opera if you hadn't read the Shakespeare play, but how does reading the Shakespeare play enhance your performance? Well, it's I mean, like any background stuff. If you, if you know the novel that um, a play is ba- based on, um, uh, La Dame aux Camille, for example, if you're doing Traviata, I mean, it's always helpful to have some sort of reference. The thing about this is that um, Britain and Piers condensed a five-act play into a three-act opera, so there's a lot which has been jettisoned. I mean, when I actually did this at school, but I, I played Theseus rather than Bottom, um, and Theseus is a much more substantial part in the play than it is in the opera. But, you know, it's it's always good to have some sort of um, uh, hinterland. It's such a fantastic text to sing. I mean, we have... You and several other British singers this season. We have British singers in the Mikado and in Hercules. So all of you have the most phenomenal English diction. So does a British singer learn to sing in English in a different way from an American? Because it's just always so exquisitely clear. Really? And it's I'm, that's very nice. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't know. I don't. Not sure if I think in general terms or generalizations like that. I mean, I know American singers that have exquisite diction as well, and some British singers that have rather sloppy diction, <laughs> so um, maybe you're just lucky that the ones you've chosen have, have quite good diction. That, that could be more to the point. But it is it is such a beautiful text to say, Oh, it's isn't wonderful it? text. Yeah. I mean, you don't really get much better than Shakespeare, so... <laughs> and it's pure Shakespeare, isn't it? I think there are one or two words that aren't. And I, Out of a whole libretto, that's pretty amazing. Yes, I mean, there's one, um, one line that I... Well, it, there are two versions, and one version of the Shakespeare says, This be the flowers of odours, savour sweet. The second version, actually, I think does say odious, but the, the version they chose, the more, the more common version in the Shakespeare is odours, whereas Britain uses odious, which then quints, corrects, and says odors, odorous, as in, you know, smell, rather than odious, hateful. That's the only example I can think of, but I, I think so, when I did it, I did a production with Peter Hall at Glyndebourne, and um, I think he told me that there was another 
line that was not so ninety nine point nine percent the bulk of it is Shakespeare. Yeah. Yes. Now, of course, whenever one talks to anybody who plays bottom on stage or in the opera, one has to talk about how one deals with wearing a donkey's head. Yes, and you've had a bunch of donkey's heads in these various productions. So, what is is it any different in our production from what you usually have? It is different in the fact that it's a, a sort of skeletal mask. It's not going to negatively impinge upon the sound. The sound comes out. I've, I've worn hats that are basically um, donkeys' masks. That are, it's, like, it's like putting a box on your head. And, of course, if the mechanism doesn't work properly, uh, opening the mouth, then it really is like singing with a box on your head. So the sound's not going anywhere. The good thing about this design is that it's just an open thing that suggests an animal. How does it stay on? We're still working on that. I just did it yesterday, and it wasn't as successful as uh, we'd like it to be. So. What's what's easiest for you in wearing it as far as get, keeping it on? Well, just keeping it, you know, making it solid without actually having a strap that's going to strangle uh, you, I think. Have it's, you ever been in danger of having it fall off? Um, there have been one or two scary moments <laughs> in the past. When we first talked about your experiences in the role, you told me a bit about how you'd been asked for different interpretations depending on who the director yeah. was. So how is the role interpreted in Neil Armfield's production, his qualities as a character? We're pretty much at one, actually, on the, on the, way, uh, on the way he is. Uh, and Neil's going for someone that's sort of insistent, takes control a lot of the time, but still retains the respect of his colleagues, even though he's driving them nuts, especially Quince. Um, He puts up with a lot of his nonsense because he knows he's good at what, you know, for an amateur, he's very good. He's a good amateur. You know, he sucks a lot of the nonsense that is being thrown at him and just takes a deep breath and thinks, okay, I can just put up with this, but, um, (laughs) you know, it'll be worth it in the end. Right. Now, they don't look the same in our production as they've done elsewhere, correct? Because they're very, they're very 20th century in their look, right? You mean the, cost, the yes. costumes? Yeah, I think this is... Um, he wanted to set it kind of... The lovers are sort of like American high Co- school college kids. kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yes. or college yes. kids, yeah. Yes. Ours are a little more ambivalent costumes. I mean, not specific. They don't look absolutely... Like you could say, oh, that's definitely 19-whatever... But do they are they dressed according to their profession? Because we've got uh, you're a weaver, and mm-hmm. then we have a carpenter, um, a joiner, joiner, a tinker. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think they're the sort of vaguely specific to tradesmen. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, now you first came to Lyric during nineteen ninety two ninety three season yeah. for the Bartered Bride. Was that your American debut? No, actually, it was not far off. I, I actually my American professional debut was in Chicago in 89 but that was with the symphony Mm -hmm. and then I think just before I sang here in 92 I made my opera debut in San Francisco the year before right has anything about Chicago or about lyric opera changed over these past two decades in your view well I I think Chicago uh, this area is 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 very different I mean I see different buildings going up but Millennium Park obviously wasn't there when I first came, but here you couldn't um, even get a cup of coffee when I uh, at the weekend when I came in '92. I mean, we had to go I think to the, one of the metro stations, and now there's a surplus of very nice eateries and 
Drinkery. So that's on a very basic level. I think that the opera still has that wonderful family quality, which it always has, and which is why I love coming here. It's, it makes you feel very welcome. I mean, just before we did this interview, I was sitting down chatting in the rehearsal department, and, and, and you don't feel, or at least they make you not feel like you're stopping them from doing their work, and it's a very welcoming place, which I very much like. What I think is marvelous is that we've had a chance to see you play very different characters because you came as Kate Sala in The Bartered Bride, and then when you when your next engagement after that was, Pirates. I think, Pirates of Penzance, where yeah. you played... Uh, the policeman. The policeman. And then you played a villain... Kingfisher, yeah. In, yeah. in The Midsummer Marriage, and now you're playing Bottom. I, I, I get the sense from looking at your CV that you really, that your versatility is sort of unlimited. Well, it's that's amazing. very kind. I mean, I like to, you know, I do like to play varied characters. It's always challenging to do different things rather than stick in one. I mean, I love playing comedy, but I, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, serious roles which I like doing as well, and and have, keep being able, give, being given the opportunity to do very varied types of roles is a wonderful opportunity. I, I think it's also exceptional that someone who excels as bottom would also excel as Boris Skudinov, which you made your debut in how many years ago? Just two uh, or three? Two or three years ago, yes. yes. Was, I assume that you had been sort of building up to that, because it's such a goal for any well, it base. Is a, it, is, it is a goal. I mean, it was a wonderful experience. And, um, uh, at the I English mean, National I, Opera, correct? English right? National Opera, and I loved, I loved doing it. It was a, it was a, a seven-scene version through, I mean, done as though it was through composed. So with no interval. So it was a long-ish, I mean, two hours evening, sort of Rheingold length, I guess, without break. But it was a, a, Tim Aubrey directing, had a, and Ed Gardner conducting. It was a wonderful, organic production. So it went seamlessly from one scene, very varied scenes, like the innkeeper scene, into the next scene, and, and things just went very smoothly. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me to... Um, to try a, such a major base role. Does it help you in a role like that to do it for the first time in your native tongue? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it did help. This particular incident, it did help me because I think learning the Russian would have taken me a long time. I remember when I sang Piman for the first time, which I think was my first Russian role. It took me forever to just, because I don't speak Russian, it was just memorizing a series of syllables and sounds and um and i remember starting on the on the roll and going through and i would repeat that and repeat that and then i would learn the second phrase and by the time i got the second phrase learned i'd forgotten the first <laughs> one so it was really a very slow process right. so doing it in english was obviously in this instance uh, a great help and benefit. I wanted to uh, conclude by just asking you what you hope the audience will come away with, what, what their most, what their strongest memory of Midsummer Night's Dream might be. Well, I hope they'll come away with a spring in their step. I think it's a fantastic piece, completely uplifting. And after the Act Three play within a play, if that can't raise people's spirits and make them chuckle, then not much will, I don't think. <laughs> I mean, I think I just think it's 
that's the highlight for me the the play within the play when they're trying their best and they're they're completely mucking it up and that's what I think we had a previous conversation where I said the humour comes from actually playing it dead straight rather than going for laughs and uh, hopefully people will be uplifted at the end of the evening thanks so much Peter thank you You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.